Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. I believe, Dr. Nirban Mahanthi, we are live. How are you going? I'm great, mate. Oh, it's great to be live. Well, I'm alive and live. That's like two things at the same time. That, mm. that's, pretty, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Two very good things. Two very important things. Um, I think you... Have to be alive to go live, although maybe, you know, there's some sort of whiz bang thing out there I don't know about yet. How's your week been? Oh, it's been good. Good. I wouldn't call it great, but it's been good. How about you? What makes it not great? Oh, it's been raining. Okay. So I'm not generating enough solar power. <laughs> for yourself <laughs> so or for your house? <laughs> oh, literally? Oh, literally for the house, you know, like I like my batteries to be fully charged, mine and, and, and the real batteries and yeah. It's, you know, I like to also export enough so that I get some credit. I like to see that I'm being paid for the energy generation that I'm doing. You know, all of those little things. It's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's nothing. It's like literally like, it's it really, I'm complaining about coffee money, but it's the, it's the pure fun of seeing the sun do the work for me. I like it. We, um, uh, Sophie, who um, was our kind of head of design for a very long time here at Rask, 
she said that she was 30% happier when the sun was out. So she tried to wrap a number around that, um, which is really interesting. At the time I, th- I heard that, I was like, 30%, that's pretty high. I don't think I get that much from the sun. But then I, I saw my doctor recently, did a heap of blood tests, and he said, my only prescription for you is more sun. So maybe there is something to it. Um, you know, getting more, sun is important. More sun or vitamin D. Mm. Or whatever yeah, more, it is. Yeah. yeah, vitamin D. He said, that's the only thing we could do a little bit of work on. So I thought that was really interesting. Just before we get into talk about stocks and whatever, just a reminder for anyone that's watching this live on YouTube, anything that we mentioned today is limited to general financial information only. So it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, objectives, and all that. You would need to see a financial planner for that information. Here in Australia, the rules are pretty strict. So we keep it general and investing related. Mate, we've got a lot to talk about today. We, um, I know you've been working on some stuff at Seven Investing. Um, we've, I've looked at a few companies this week, a few strange and bizarre companies. Um, we've got a big, big merger that didn't, or takeover that didn't go through. Uh, we've got some news from Blackmores, from Zip, which was interesting. It was about four paragraphs long um, with one of the world's biggest companies. So that's always a bit of fun when you get those announcements. And we're going to dive into that topic we've been promising for a long time, which is basically... How do you pick winners in an industry, a growing area? When you when you think you know there's a thematic, what, how do you do that? If you have any questions for us and you are watching this live stream, you can just jump straight into YouTube there and, and drop a question in. Um, I'll try and make sure we're also on Twitter and seeing if anything's coming through there. Okay, mate. So maybe just to kick kick things off, as always, what have you been working on? Oh, I was going to say, you know, why don't you tell us what you have been working on? Because you've okay. been looking at a few different things. You know, let's change it up. Okay, sure. Yeah, sure. So um, this week, um, things have been really interesting for me. In fact, this the last few weeks, one of the things that uh, that's interesting about our business, uh, thanks, Jay, for posing a question there. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about, I guess, business and investing generally is that when you, when you have a when you invest in companies, I think it's a lot different to actually operating inside one. And, and what I mean by that is you can learn all these things, but sometimes you don't grasp the full realities of it. And so for me, you know, I've read all the books about lean startups, about ways to scale and all this type of stuff. And we're going to get to that in just a minute, some of those books. But, um, you know, over the last, say, year, Rask has gone, we went from about 10 people in our team to one, being myself, when there was almost there was an existential risk that became a reality. And now we've gone back to 10 people or thereabouts. And throughout this kind of scaling process, things have changed for me, right? Like it, you've got to look inside yourself and say, okay, where are my skills? Where am I best suited? What can I do to unlock the team? And it's a totally different skill set. And so I'm still coming to grips with that. And um, yeah, I, I, I found that as I've gone through this process, I feel like I've become better at analyzing small businesses. So one of the things that I've been spending a bit of time on recently is just looking at private companies and um, potentially finding ways to invest in them. There are some really interesting um, crowdsourcing or crowdfunding, sorry, um, websites and platforms here in Australia now. So, um, you know, we get a lot of these offer documents and there are actually rules under crowdfunding here in Australia that allow companies to have an option before they go to the ASX or to private equity or something like that. So um, you can have more shareholders, you can raise, you can have literally thousands of shareholders in a private company, whereas that wasn't the case before this. Um, strategy came in. So we've been looking at a few companies in that space. We looked at, I looked at a, a business called Kester Black this week, uh, which is a cosmetics brand. It's like a vegan, um, you know, 
pro-environment kind of um, cosmetics brand, which is a bit interesting. Um, but also, if we're speaking of pro-environment, there's a company on the ASX called Vulcan, which I've been having a look at. And Vulcan mm-hmm. was something that I was asked to talk about on Ausbiz yesterday. And I've got to admit that this is an interesting business. It's got some pretty powerful backers, uh, 1.6 billion market cap and no actual real revenue because its project in Germany is still a way off. But it managed to raise $200 million in capital, which I was very surprised about. So everyone must know something I don't. But I think in these situations where you see the, the market cap and the share price performance like this and the the time until a project comes to fruition, such a far long way off in the distance. I find people tend to overestimate the need to get in quick. Like there's a lot of water that has to go on the bridge there, right? So <laughs> really interesting company. Um, I'm not an investor, but just really interesting. Get asked a lot of questions about it. So that's what I've been working on. Sorry for the long, long no, explanation. That's very, 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 very interesting. Yeah, the, uh, I like the private investment angle as well. Yeah, there, there can be some opportunities there. There are some platforms um, in in the in the U.S. as well. I'm actually a member of uh, one of them called MicroVentures. Uh, what is interesting about MicroVentures is that you would find secondaries of um, companies that are not yet public, right? And it's like a secondary it's like a secondary market to the company's primary market. Like you know, a company like SpaceX, for example, would you know you can actually buy shares of SpaceX there. Oh right. Yeah. So I actually got MicroVentures. It's called micro ventures. Um, yeah, recently signed up to the. the, the you need to um, fulfill the criteria for being a sophisticated investor. So have certain conditions that you have to fulfill. Uh, if you fulfill that, then they it unlocks a few different options. I haven't actually made an investment yet because the reason I primarily got that into that one is to actually invest in SpaceX if I could. Um, I know if I should. Right. A couple couple of people who have bought into SpaceX through there, and and then. <laughs> And it has already gone up a lot um, because it's, you know because they have private rounds right where they are raising money from other people, and then some internal folks might be actually selling their shares. Um, right. it, it is, a, it, I'll just caveat more quickly that you know if anybody's thinking about private investing, one of the things that they need to remember is that you could be locked out for a long, long time before you actually can may be able to realize the value, right? What if the company never goes public um, and then you don't find an opportunity to sell those shares back via some secondary option, then you're kind of stuck. Mm. You basically got paper wealth, <laughs> yep. which you don't have with the public market, right? I mean- That's a huge risk, yeah. That's a huge, huge risk, something to keep in mind. Yeah, and I think this is that's why a lot of the times it is only sophisticated investors who can, even if there are funds that invest in private equity, um, they're typically sophisticated only for that very reason or wholesale. Um, and that makes sense, right? Like a lot of people struggle to think more than six months, uh, let alone like five years, which is oftentimes the minimum term for a lot of these positions. So, and yeah. then, like you said, you know, a lot of these companies that we're looking at in Australia on the crowdfunding side of things, they actually uh, have really stringent like shareholders agreements or constitutions, which basically prohibit you transferring shares without offering them back to the founders first. So, yeah. and that's, and that's pretty normal. Like a lot of founders, like I'm in this situation too, where when, when I did a shareholders agreement for our business, I wanted to protect existing shareholders as much as I could. And so we baked in something like that into our shareholders agreement. And so it's normal, but for people that aren't familiar with that type of thing and don't understand kind of the legalese, it actually can be pretty, 
um, it can be a bit of a minefield. So obviously keep your wits about you. Um, how about you, mate? What have you been working on? I, I've got a feeling being the 1st of October when we're recording this, that this is some sort of special day for you and the seven investing team. Well, well it took, so, so, it took, so tomorrow morning in the US. Tomorrow morning release, US time. Tomorrow morning yeah. US time, we release our, the seven investing recs come out, right? So, you know, we're putting final touches to our recommendations and, uh, yeah. So, you know, writing it up, uh, filming my video, the marketing video that we do, the two minute clip that we do, or less than two minute clip that we do for Twitter, those sort of things. Yeah. I'm actually quite, I'm quite stoked about the one that I've got this time because, um, it's an interesting little business, which, uh, um, how do I describe it? It's a business. It's very rare to find these sort of businesses which are, you know, relatively small sized still. You know, in a U.S. Uh, scheme of mm. things, should be large cap here in Australia. Uh, but fast growing, you know, uh, significant own insider ownership, uh, dynamic leadership, um, and profitable. Right, not just on an operating basis, but at the bottom line as well. Interesting. With, uh, Interesting. With excellent tailwinds, right? It's it's one of those uh, things. So yes, I filmed my. Here's the hint. I filmed my marketing video inside my Tesla, right? But it has got nothing to do with Tesla. <laughs> so so that that's the hint. Um, uh, you know. So uh, is it on yeah, Twitter I, yet? I'm it's trying not to find yet it. on Twitter. Yeah, it's not it's not yet on Twitter yet because you know they'll probably get posted tomorrow, right? So, okay. Um, this is the heads up. <laughs> so, uh, this is the tease of the tease. Uh, so this is a pre tease of the tease. Yeah. But anyways, I think one of the favorite things for me is, uh, you know, sitting through the stock pitches and this watching what has been proposed. And I really find that very interesting. And, and it's just interesting from, from an investor learning point of view. Like I just look at, I, I take it as, okay, what can I learn from listening to my colleagues, right? Pitch their stocks hmm. and you know, I always learn something. And it, it, it's, I also find just a different gamut of uh, risk reward that people look at, right? There's so many different ways in which you can invest in the stock market. And I just, every month I sort of, okay, I say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And uh, you know, and, and yeah, okay, I can see how that can be a 10 bagger. Uh, maybe it's higher risk, maybe it's not. Um, and I can see, okay, that doesn't necessarily have to be a 10 bagger, but it can still be a very nice market beating uh, investment because it's less risky, steady, and you know, well-known name and things like that. So I mm. just again different styles. It's really you know, it's very easy for me to dismiss some other style. But again, I see look at it and say, okay, yeah, that presentation made a lot of sense. You know, when I think there's a difference between pitching a name and pitching a stock with a presentation. They're two very different things. Um, mm. And I would dismiss some of those stocks saying, ah, okay, <laughs> not interested. Mm. I said, okay, maybe I'm interested in this one. So anyways, that's my. Uh, yeah, I actually love, you know, this towards sort of the end of the month is um, is when from an investor point of view, you get a lot of education, which which mm. is which is pretty cool. What yeah. else have I been, I've been doing something else, actually. There's been some, um, I'm going to actually be talking about this uh, this afternoon with uh, uh, Daniel Ikue. Um, yep. And we're talking, we're chatting about Tesla, but you know, just, uh, one of the things I've been doing is I've been doing some ROIC calculations uh, over the last uh, day or two that's because there's been tweet going out uh, about some businesses and their rocs and um so you know so somebody tweeted out actually i named the, named the person mayu take taker uh who i interviewed uh for a seven investing podcast um yeah and i, I recommend people follow him he's, he's a fantastic analyst really good thinker 
and uh, has a really unique way of analyzing businesses. And, and I learned a lot. We basically had a long discussion about, about Tesla. But he put out a slide, or he gave an interview with somebody else where there was a slide that talked about uh, ROICs of some businesses. So something like an Apple, according to him, was sitting at 42%, right? And, and the, the key thing there was how basically the invested capital is going down because effectively Apple is buying back shares, right? So if you've invested capital goes down, then your ROIC goes up because, well, you know, you reduce the denominator mm. <laughs> uh, by buying back shares, which is, you know, um, an interesting way of looking at it. But then, you know, he was just looking at Tesla's and doing Tesla's competition. And according to him, I believe that requires some adjustments. Tesla is sitting at 23% ROIC, which is pretty phenomenal. I've actually got a question for you on that because you just said adjustments and Julian's just asked, Hey gents, just wondering how you think about return on invested capital. Is it a metric more applicable to manufacturing businesses or is there a way we can use it for SaaS businesses, you know, capital light businesses? Yeah. But capital light businesses, there's not, you know, you would expect invested capital is going to be small, right? It's not, you know, you should have very high um, (laughs) RIC in theory, right? So, I mean, for capital light businesses, I just basically just look at operating leverage, uh, kicking in much earlier than. So when you say uh, operating leverage, what do you mean? But then if you if you're going before ROI, say what do you? I'm just looking at I'm just looking at operating profit, and I look at you know the operating profit basically scaling much faster than say sales, for example, right? Yeah. And and that that's all I really need to see. I mean, you could do you could I mean theoretically you could do an ROIC calculation for anything, right? You could do an ROIC calculation for someone like uh, Google, and it would make sense because I mean they also have huge investments in mm. any company that becomes big eventually has investments in something, <laughs> yeah. right? They have to invest somewhere. So uh, you could theoretically do that, but that's how I do. I, you know, it's, I see things more interesting for like an Amazon style, a heavy, um, any business that requires, I guess, an infrastructure sort of investment. I think that's, it's interesting for that. And I think it's interesting for uh, just to gain uh, insight into sort of the scaling early on, right? I mean, mm. if you, if the ROIC right now is say 20%, right? And if you realize that the business is still not fully leveraging the, I guess, the base of investment has made, then there's a lot more juice left in that lemon to squeeze, right? And that's basically the idea. Yeah. Um, yeah but again, it's I one think- metric among the many. Yeah, there is. Yeah, and so actually, so Jay actually asked a question on this. He says, "Long time listener, first time asking a question. Uh, no better time, Jay, than the present. I would like to be able to analyze multiple companies using key metrics. Is there a tool that provides this info that I can export to Excel? Key metrics at a time. You probably have to pay for software yeah. to do that, right? And 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 here's the thing, right? So ROIC. So I, you know, when I do my calculation, my results are going to be different from my yours because I might not have made the adjustment that he made." Uh, mm-hmm. I just looked at the formula and basically plugged the numbers using the you know the cash flow statement and the balance balance sheet, right? And it, then I mean, ultimately, I think okay. So here's the thing I'll tell Jay: I think you can be number focused. Numbers are are good, right? Uh, but it's like pandemic modeling. Here's here's how's that a switch? You know, we live, we're in lockdown. Okay, here we so go. Pandemic pandemic modeling. So it's like pandemic modeling. We can say we're going to be peak high of this thing because the model said that, and my my number one starting point of all models are wrong because by definition models make assumptions, and when you start putting assumptions 
stuff is going to be different from what the reality is because you're never going to be able to you know fully incorporate all the reality so the the importance of models model is really to get insight right i call looking at models and figuring out okay what's the absolute high what's the absolute low what's like basically asymptotic analysis as engineers would call it it's very <laughs> useful because it gives you an understanding of the limits um, but then I think you want to be practical in your in, in your analysis, right? I mean, the P's don't tell you everything. The operating leverage doesn't tell you everything. The EV doesn't tell you. EV over S doesn't tell you everything. The growth rate doesn't tell you everything, right? There's a lot of soft stuff that matters. And I think all the big winners that I've had, the soft stuff has mattered way more. Like the way I've looked at Apple, you could not have looked at that using a metric. There was no metric. There's no metric that says that Apple is a human computer interaction company and therefore so duh, I mean, what do I do? You know, you can say network effects and this and that, but there's just no way. So you, I think, you know, the best thing, it's, it's just like looking at human beings. You have to analyze the package mm. and there's no one metric to, mm. right? If, because if there was a metric, then you'd say, well, you know, you went to Stanford and therefore you're great. But most of the great entrepreneurs did not go to Stanford or they went to Stanford and dropped out. <laughs> yeah, they left. Yeah. <laughs> they left. So, Maybe you can mind that. So when they left, which semester, and then yeah, and and then <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's that's the thing. So I think you have to use. You know, I, I find there's no single. It's again. I'm not saying the metrics are not useful. They are useful to get some insight. But I would not want to be. I never screen like that. That just does not help. Yeah, I tend to use a softer approach as well. So reading and following other investors or. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever been a fan of screens, but you can do it. And, you know, we do say that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And in companies, you know, there are certain factors that you look for. And many quant funds have done this and kind of mined it and arbitraged it out of existence in many instances. But you can use things, you know, I, I think in a, for a, if he's looking for Australian, just in terms of software, Jay, you might be able to use something like simply Wall Street or even the ticket terminal. Um maybe, I mean, you get expensive if you start talking about Cap IQ, Bloomberg, and 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 I'm sure I'm missing a heap. But, um, you know, there are plenty of sites that have the ability to export to Excel. I know there are plugins um, for Cap IQ into Excel. I don't use it myself, but you can do things like that. Um, the ticker terminal is pretty cool. Ticker, T-I-K-R. It's um, created by Bobby out of the US. Uh, I was chatting to him on LinkedIn not too long ago. But um, that's just some just some resources. And I agree because we had an episode recently where we talked about the different factors that we would, you know, if we could only pick three each, what would we pick? And they were kind of similar but different. And we would use that basically as a list to then go and do the research. And I think particularly newer investors often think that the end point is the number. Like that's 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 because that's what we're taught, you know, find the, the number and therefore that equals a good investment. But nece- not necessarily is kind of the other way around. So. Really interesting. Can I can I add one quick thing? You know, another thing mm-hmm. that actually has um, resulted in this sort of thinking is that a lot of places people ask, well, "What is the valuation?" And you know, a lot of lot. <laughs> see, my valuation is thirty dollars, and therefore I sold the share, so therefore I think it's overvalued. Mm-hmm. And so there's another thing. Uh, I think the moment you put a single number to something, you know, you you're creating sort of I think a Pandora's box. There's no way you could basically, you know. You'd have to have a confidence interval, right? You'd you'd have a range in which you say, my range says I have high confidence that something is valued in this range. But the moment you pick a single number, I think you you are, and then you sort of think about that single number, you get into this mode where, okay, you know, you become very number focused, right? And then you lose yeah. some sort of sight of the other things. But 
very useful for screening to get a list, I think. A lot of you know, things are um, useful for screening. I was asked the other day, um, how do you, how, if you have a private company, so say you, you buy, buy you know, $5,000, $2,000 from one of these crowdfunded companies that are private companies, how do you do a valuation? And how do you kind of determine what's a price to exit? And I, my response to that was basically, well, what is someone else willing to pay? And if you think about a very illiquid market, you know, we know that stocks you can typically buy and sell on the same day. But imagine if there's only one buyer and one seller every three months, how do you determine a price? And basically you have to come to an arrangement with that person. You have to convince them what it's worth. And if there are three other sellers, they'll try and convince them of something too. And so at the end of the day, in illiquid markets, basically the price is set based on the last sale and the last sale is typically based on whatever your valuation is and everyone can be independent. Um, it's just that the law of big numbers apply to stock markets and we tend to you know, coalesce buy orders and sell orders around a price. And so at the end of the day, valuations tend to be whatever you believe it to be. And you, know, you can have a range, as you said, but even just as you, know, if you put three investors side by side, they probably all have different ranges and valuations too. So I think that's a, a worthwhile point to just add on the end there as well. But hey, we could, you and I, I feel like we could go for days on this. Um, we've got a, a couple of we news stories to talk about. One, <laughs> the first one is uh, is Zoom and Five9. Um, mm. I think you're a bit more familiar with this business given what we talked about recently with Zoom. Um, I know that from a high level, I know what's kind of going on, but maybe you can just fill us in on, on Zoom plus Five9, what that meant and what transpired. Yeah, so Five9 is like a contact center type of business, right? Basically, you know, provides contact center support, if you think about it. Um, and it kind of makes sense that they, those two companies would work together, right? Because audio, voice, and contact center makes sense. I, I think in this particular case, and it was probably going to be the largest acquisition or maybe the biggest acquisition that Zoom has ever made. Uh, mm. you know, it was valued at something like close to 15 billion US, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And I think the problem here was a couple of things, right? Uh, one was uh, the the deal was a stock deal. The premium was not that high, right. and the the other problem is that if the you know the the currency which you are using to pay for it, if that currency drops in value, then the the corresponding value. <laughs> <laughs> that the buyers are getting also drops. That's basically what happened here, right? So Zoom didn't right. have a, or as great a quarter. Well, that's my interpretation of the events. Didn't didn't have as great a quarter as one would have expected, uh, or the, as the analysts expected. And then maybe they didn't guide for as strong a you know forward guidance as the analysts might have wanted, and that resulted in some you know re resetting of price targets and you know selling of shares and people repositioning their positions and things like that and zoom basically has been on sort of a downdraft uh, from a share price point of view that of course meant that the five nine shareholders are now getting a poorer deal relatively speaking right mm. so what is interesting i think is that the shares of five nine were not quite trading exactly but sort of following along maybe the the zoom pricing uh, but there was, you know, as one would expect that there's a potential for this deal to not go through. Maybe that was already being baked in by the market participants to some extent. And I think basically they feel like they're not getting enough of a premium is my guess. And that's primarily the reason I think they're just basically saying, okay, <laughs> we, we may be better off being a separate company. 
Um, what I think is interesting is that if that is the, you know, I, I think five, nine shares went down actually a couple of percentage points in post, uh, you know, in the after hours trading, when this deal, and mm. deal was announced as breakups happened, I would have actually thought it would go up <laughs> because if, if in the market was hesitant about the deal and then the deal is now over, well, then five nines future is independent, right? So one would think that, you know, they're, they're rewarded for it. Uh, and commensurately, I would think that Zoom's shares should go up now because now there's less dilution, <laughs> right? So, but anyways, I, again, I would not have ever thought that this would not go through. I almost thought it was a done deal. Uh, so I thought it was interesting that it didn't happen um, because the shareholders, you know, decided um, that, you know, they're not getting the deal that they wanted. And I think there's some proxy voting issues and stuff like that. Mm. Involved, so yeah. some proxy organization has gotten gotten involved in this deal, and they basically, you know, um, pushed forward with the with the agenda of not making the deal happen, which I think is interesting. There's also something else which is really interesting, um, and maybe I'll just add some context to this. When I was doing an interview with the CEO of an Australian tech company, which does a lot of its op, um, business in the US, so it's based here in Australia, but its primary businesses are in the US and accounts in US dollars or whatever. And they deal with big um, infrastructure companies and organizations out of the US. And um, I, I dialed into him on a Zoom call and he said to me, oh, we don't normally use them because we're not allowed to. The, um, the big companies in the US don't allow us to send our data through Zoom. I thought that was a really interesting comment. And then so this Zoom deal, there was actually something going on in the background, which was, I'm just going to quote CNBC here, a committee formerly known as the Team Telecom pointed to, quote, foreign participation in a letter it sent to the Federal Communications Commission uh, about this deal because Five9 has operations in Russia and Zoom has research and development staff in China, which is really interesting. So um, this deal was kind of getting analyzed from multiple perspectives. Obviously, you've got the companies and the shareholders and you've got the proxies, then you've got the regulators. You know, this was really interesting deal all around. So um, fascinating stuff. I don't, you know, I was trying to, come to grips with the, the deal in terms of what it meant strategically for Zoom. I, I could understand why Zoom wanted to have more focus on, on enterprise and be in, you know, facilitate that because they've got like the Zoom phone and they're kind of replacing Cisco in basically every sense um, around, around the office. So I, I get that, but the call center angle was a little bit different for me. I, I wasn't sure that Zoom would go down this road. I thought maybe there might, might have been another strategic partner that could have gotten further into enterprise because, you know, you and I are doing this through Zoom right now and then that streams to YouTube. But outside of this, I don't use Zoom for anything, right? Like nothing. Yeah. And I think a lot of businesses are like that. Whereas you look at, say, Apple or Google Meet or um, Microsoft Teams, they're basically like an all-in-one solution. You don't need to create a new link. And I know we've had one listener come in and say, you can actually get a, a Chrome browser add-on for Zoom and, and make it all work together. Um, but I just, I've always found that a little bit interesting. And I thought this deal from that perspective, I was just trying to get a, my head around strategically where they were going. I don't know if you made heads or tails uh, so of that. How, I, I mean, you know, like these sort of, you're right, right? I mean, these sort of acquisitions are maybe, they're not directly complementary, right? So they might run the two businesses separately, then try to butt heads and try to figure out, okay, well, you know, what where's the common ground? One one thing that you know, if you, so I think that the Cisco angle where you're replacing all the, uh, the the telephony infrastructure in enterprises, then 
you have the opportunity of saying, okay, you want call center support, we can actually inbuild that with Zoom for you. Sure. So, um, you know, let's say you're Qantas, right? I mean, you need telephones and you want call center support and we can provide both. It's, it's a flimsy argument. Then you could, you know, sort of say, uh, we'll top that with uh, sentiment analysis for, you know, your customers and things like that. Um, you know, whether they're happy, whether they're not, whether they're angry. You know, you can build AI on top of it and things like that. That's what it's not miles off, but it doesn't seem, I mean, as you and I have previously talked about, right? I mean, the natural partner would have been something like Slack. Like, I mean, what seems to be missing from Zoom and from Slack? Slack doesn't have video capabilities. Every every small, now. large, what, what, is it, is it, it, it always had, but it was not ever any good. No, the question is, true. is it any yeah. good? Right. Yeah. And, so the two things could really would have been complementary, right? And and then one thing, of course, we haven't, you know, uh, we have to try out whether the new FaceTime allows mm. us to record excellent videos now that it, you know, and if it does, uh, maybe you don't need to. I don't know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, true. Hey, um, the next topic was is an interesting one, um, which is an Australian-centric one, I guess, but for Australian business, but um, launching overseas, which is, uh, Blackmores going into India, which is an interesting market because for those who don't know, Blackmores is history, being a vitamins uh, creator, provider, um, was started off in China really, really well. It was all the rage for a very, very long time. And and like um, infant formula providers gone after it, it actually kind of fizzled out and the company kind of fell in a heap. So now to be going after probably the second biggest market, um, at least by population, is a really interesting move. I'm not sure if you made anything of this. I don't really follow Blackmores that closely, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't follow Blackmores. I, th I think the move, I think the, you know, so you made an interesting comment, right? the second biggest market. So there's this general thing that I think companies think that, you know, the Indian market is large, right? Uh, in mm. terms of population, 1.4 billion people. But there's, there's a big difference between the Chinese market and the Indian market. For example, the Indian market sure. is very price conscious. <laughs> so you can't sell them premium. And then the, um, of course, there's a small population of people who'd be interested in buying a premium vitamin. Uh, you know, But most of the people are going to be buying vitamin from you know, a company like the Himalaya, which is local, which will sell it for like you know, 100, the price that you'd be able to sell it for. And how do you compete with that? And they'll probably make, you know, uh, the packaging look fancier than you. I mean, that is the problem. So it's a very price conscious market. The The other thing is, I don't know uh, about, so is there any brand value from an Indian um, um, consumer point of view, right? They probably don't even know what Blackmores is. For, so you'd have to build up the brand. That's a hard mm. ask. In a, in a, it's, it's not like Nike going, like, you know, everybody knows what Nike is. It's one, so there's an aspirational brand, right? I mean, people don't have iPhones in India because they can't afford it. Because if those people could afford it, they would, you know, they would ditch their cheap phone and get an iPhone. But the iPhone is very expensive. They can't have it, um, right? The same thing people wear, Adidas and Nike and the others, right? I don't know whether people really care about whether it's vitamins from Blackmores or Himalaya or something else. So I, I think it's going to be a tough market. Um, and it's definitely very unlike the Chinese market um, where they have a fascination for premium, clean, green, and you know, 
also, you know, Kiwi and Australian products and things like that. So it's going to be interesting. I'm going to, you know, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Mm. Yeah, it is. Um, I was just saying that the share price has fallen in a heap recently. That was comparing it to the 2018 highs, which was around about $175 um, midway through 2021. It was down to about 66. But it seems like in recent times, it's it's actually reported some growth from its international segment, uh, including China. So um, maybe things are starting to turn around there. Um, it's a really interesting business just because uh, it's a vitamins business and yet it is a pretty large business, at least by Australian standards. So um, here in Australia, it's a very strong brand. Obviously, you see it at every chemist. It kind of has to be there alongside some others like Swiss. Um, so really interesting. Um, again, I'm not, I don't have any special insights, so I can't tell you what I think of it necessarily longer term, but um, just a really interesting business with a strong brand locally. Um, the, the next one uh, that we're going to talk about, which is another stock that's equally um, interesting, if um, if my comments about Vulcan, which was the, the company that is $1.6 million. Um, billion, billion. Billion, sorry, billion <laughs> dollars and um, not a million of revenue yet. Um, raised some eyebrows amongst the community. I think, you know, any type of comment that I have about Zip is probably equally likely to raise a few eyebrows and a few comments on social media channels. But basically, Zip, which is a buy now, pay later service provider, came out and said, um, we've entered an agreement with Microsoft to integrate Zip into Microsoft Edge shopping experiences. So Zip, I'm reading straight from the announcement, is pleased to announce that it is entering an agreement with Microsoft to integrate Zip technology into the shopping experiences within Edge. Beginning with the US market, there are more than 1.3 billion devices running Windows 10. Windows 10, that's a different turn. So for those of you that are interested in language, Windows 10 is not necessarily Edge. Um, so interesting there. Um, the new Zip functionality is being tested in uh, during the Q4 and could launch as early as November 2021. Um, the comment here is that uh, Zip provides customers with a transparent digital payment solution uh, option, sorry, and we are excited to integrate with the shopping experience in Microsoft Edge. I'm not sure if you, um, you I mean, you probably see this everywhere you go, but for those of you that don't, um, you can actually pay with your browser in some respects nowadays. So if you have a Chrome um, browser and you've got a, a wallet set up, um, I, I don't know if you can do it with Safari and Apple yet, but uh, in many instances, depending on the browser you use, you can get different options shown at e-commerce sites. So for example, if you're on Chrome and you're on our website, um, the RAS website, and you pay for something, you might see PayPal natively inbuilt, and then it automatically registers that you've got a PayPal extension or something like that, and it automatically pays and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so this is an interesting, interesting move because um, if it is, you know, a, a big deal, then a buy now pay later service like Zip will actually experience, you know, significant growth. I'd imagine from a from an operation such as this, but very light on detail for partnering with one of the world's biggest companies, uh, a grand total of four paragraphs. So yeah, I, I don't know what, I don't necessarily know what to make of this, but I know the buy now pay later sector is what we've been talking about a lot lately. It's been heating up. Um, what I would say is that it seems very early on. So many companies love to name drop, of course, and to talk about um, opportunities that they've forged with big, big names. I remember one going back in time, which was with Amazon. Um, and this is an extreme example. So I don't say this is necessarily for Zip at all. I don't say that. But the extreme example that I have from the past was that a company announced a partnership with Amazon. And then that effectively, there was a video that emerged that said the the deal was effectively could have been written on toilet paper. So, um, but that was enough for them to announce it to the ASX. 
And so, you know, you've got to just be mindful that when these agreements are announced, are they material? Yes. Okay. Let's see some revenue before maybe we get ahead of ourselves. But Zip does have a really good track record of partnering with some big companies. I believe if you go to Amazon, you can use Zip. Um, so really interesting deal. Um, and I, my kind of high level takeaway is that it's basically becoming a two horse race here with Afterpay and Zip. That's probably my big takeaway. There are some players on the outside. I'm not sure how closely you follow buy now pay later but that's kind of my surface level kind of discussion uh, so I, I think a couple of things i'll just quickly say i don't follow it that closely but yeah like i think buy now pay later is gaining momentum in the u.s right so um hmm. that's a very big market where it's gaining momentum which is very very interesting so zip is doing what it can um afterpay has already made a deal with square um i think right now i'd say that the it looks like a firm which is a US-based uh, mm. company, um, Zip and Afterpay. So I'd almost say Afterpay number one, a firm number two, maybe Zip, you know, close number three. These are sort of the leaders in that space. How this is going to shake out is very hard to say because, as, as you said, right, it's still very early days, right? It, you know, like PayPal has its own um, buy now, pay later offering, right, that has launched. I mean, there's no reason that other payment providers can't launch their own operation. So again, very interesting, early days, lots happening. It, and I think there was an announcement not too long ago about Apple potentially moving into the space too, um, basically being able to just facilitate that through another bank. So basically have the merchant bank and then it's provided through Apple Pay. Obviously Apple has cards and, and the like, so it's not necessarily a massive extension for their ecosystem to do this. Um, but yeah, it's a very interesting space. And I think at first I disregarded a lot of the buy now, pay later because I thought I was thinking from a financial educator perspective, kind of the impacts on the community and I thought it'd be heavily regulated, but it really hasn't happened. We haven't really seen any regulation at all. So um, these businesses have been able to thrive and, and rally those underlying sales, which of course uh, turn into to revenue for these businesses. So it's really interesting. Zip is now a near $4 billion company. Um, and it seems to be making all the right moves alongside Afterpay, but obviously Afterpay, is, which we've talked about, is getting taken over by Square. Um, so maybe it finds a suitor in the US. Um, maybe it doesn't. I, I, yeah, a firm seems like an interesting one. Obviously, floated not too long ago as well. Um, I'm just going to bring this up here. Yeah, it's um, it's had a, it had a bit of a shaky start, obviously, but um, it seems to have come back. And I think you know, there's a space for a lot of these providers. It's just a matter of. Does, do any of them get, get gobbled up before um, there's a chance for, for them to really become multi-baggers? I guess we'll see. Um, the next topic that we want to talk about, which is probably one that we've been alluding to for a while now, which is basically how do you pick winners in a, in a growth industry? How do you identify opportunities? So, for example, you wrote a, a brilliant uh, report recently, which is about zero trust computing, about cybersecurity. Um, that's a really interesting you know, thematic and, and sector in general and trend that's going on throughout not only markets, but also through just our general day-to-day -day business and, and consumer lives. But many investors often come up to this point when they think, okay, so I can get an ETF to give me exposure to the broad market. Um, but, you know, I've got histories littered with the ex examples of multi-baggers, really extreme companies that have provided magnificent returns for investors. How do I go about trying to identify which company that's going to be? Now, this is a whole, there are books written to the, written on this one topic. So 
we're going to try and give our perspective on it, but maybe throwing it over to you, mate. How do you approach something like this? Because I know you, you do a lot of work in these really interesting industries. Like, I mean, number one, I'll, the number one thing is I'll say is that it's very hard to, you know, consistently identify those large multi-bagger opportunities, right? So uh, mm. let's say you said zero trust. So the zero trust report, I mean, if people wanted, they can still grab it from the seven investing uh, site. Um, but here's the thing, right? So zero trust has got multiple components. So zero trust is basically a type of security framework. Um, it's a modern security framework that enterprises should adopt, uh, sort of becoming a de facto standard. And uh, now it is a standard, but there are many different components to it, right? So how do you achieve zero trust if you are looking at um, individual devices and endpoints? How do you look at zero trust? So when I say devices and endpoints, what I basically mean is, you know, how do you think about zero trust if you're thinking about your computer, your laptops, your, uh, you know, your smartphones and things like that. Um, then there's, of course, some IT infrastructure that you might be housing, some internal applications that you might be housing. How do you think about that? If you have got multiple um, sites that you want to link and have secure links and secure communication between these and you want to achieve zero trust type framework, how do you achieve that? These are different problems that need to be addressed, right? So for each sort of problem, you can find a solution leader and you could bet on that. And I think that's been my strategy is to find a particular area and then find sub areas in them and then identify who I think are the leaders. And sometimes you might find multiple leaders that, you know, they all overlap with each other and then sort of pick those. So I'm never really trying to say at a very high level. So, so I guess what I'm just to, just to back, backtrack a bit, we could say cybersecurity is a huge area. That's mm. a huge, big area. And ask me to pick one cybersecurity stock that's going to be great, that's very hard, right? Because then what you need to really know is what sub-area of the cybersecurity space are you really focusing on? Because typically when the area is that big, most companies tend to focus in or hone in, unless they are like a large cap. Like if they're a Microsoft, then they would have you know their hands in different pies, in different you know places. So I, I tend to go into the sub-area and then look at the leader in the sub-area and basically you know back the leader. And I would build a basket, right? So I would pick sub-area one, sub-area two, sub-area three, sub-area four, and I'd pick a bunch of stocks in that area. And you could expand that argument to software as a service as well, right? Software as a service is a very general term, right? It's a modality. But mm -hmm. then software as a service can be used for security, can be used for human resources, can be used for accounting, can be used for so many different things. Then you could pick which areas have the biggest TAMs, or sub areas have the biggest TAMs, and then try to find the leader, right? And generally backing the leader seems to be a good strategy, gives you a better chance, at least in my opinion, about finding those big multi-baggers. So that's sort of my strategy. Again, not trying to, I, let me put it this way. I never try to be too, um, I don't necessarily have to be concentrated. So I don't try to say, okay, I'm gonna go, go in with this and I'm gonna make this a 20% position because I have very high conviction in this. Instead, I would say, okay, I like these five different ideas and I'll pick all five. And, you know, that, that's been my approach. Curious how to hear you, yours though. How do you, can you, maybe an example might illustrate how you find a, the winner, like who is winning? Like, are you going off size in terms of, you know, just the sheer revenue that this company generates? Are you going off what you hear from other people or the, you, you test the products? Like, how do you determine that? 
Right. Okay. So this is a, this is a hard one, right? This is hard because there's it depends a lot on a particular area. So let's let's use security because you're talking about security, and I'll talk about a particular company called say Zscaler, which does enterprise level security for what they call securing the edge of the network. And the, and so the solution is really clever. What they do is they basically run a proxy um, globally, right? So they run multiple proxies, and what proxy usually does is you could have a forward proxy or a reverse proxy. Now I'm going into too much technicalities, but yeah, a, a normal proxy was used in the good old days for caching web content. So the idea of a proxy was to bring content closer to the user, right? To enable the user to access that content quickly, right? So instead of the content being always delivered from an origin server, they're delivered from you know close by proxies. Here, what they've done is they're sort of they're taking this idea, but they reverse it. So what they've done is they've put proxies around the globe at major uh, points of presence. Um, that basically means they basically put them at um, the locker room of various telcos. <laughs> That's another way of thinking about that. Or big, large data centers in big cities. And what they're doing is effectively all communication that your company's devices need to make go through this data center. And then basically once they hit the data center from that point on, it can analyze the traffic going upstream and then analyze the traffic going downstream. So it's basically doing deep packet inspection. And it can do that because it's running this basically um, packet level inspection, including encrypted data, because most of the data is HTTPS, right? So it can do that for all flows that are going through the network. Now, how do you how do you figure out that this is sort of a leader? Well, a couple of different things you can do. One is you can, of course, look at the try to look at the technology and see if it makes sense. Right, um, that's one checkbox. The other thing that you could do is you can look at something like a Gartner's magic quadrant. Right, so then mm. Gartner has a framework where they put basically they would have a rating or ranking for different companies in a particular area based on who's the leader, who's the follower. Right. And they're usually very, very good. So that gives you a good sense of what the competition landscape looks like and who's who's in it. Um, that gives you, you know, an idea of which companies to look at. And the third thing you can do, and this is where I think research comes into play, is um, you look at so you look at security, right? And let's say you Zscaler, but you can look at Zscaler's competitors, and you can look at uh, what I would say um, the legacy players. So you can look at the legacy players and compare them with the modern players and you can see what the conference calls are saying right and you know so in the, in in the good old days security was a hardware play basically you installed a lot of different hardware boxes now security is a software play because the hardware has been disrupted right so a combination of different things and of course then revenue growth um leverage um if you're signing big customers that's a great sign like you know if you're if you're signing fortune 500 mm. companies and lots of point. them well that's a, that's a good sign. So a lot of different things. Uh, testing testing is really hard, right? It's very hard for an individual investor or a small investment house to actually test an enterprise-grade solution. Mm. Most of the time, we would not be using them. Or even if we use them, the scale at which we are using them is really small. It's very hard to actually tell, you know, is the solution significantly better. So a lot of reading technical information and things like that. That's, again, I don't have a formula. Per se, again, it differs from comp company to company. I know this is an unsatisfactory answer. No, no, no. I think it's I think it's really interesting, and I think it provides a great kind of base for people to to work to, um, and just acknowledging that it's not always a science. In in you know, just pick the biggest one 
and that's the winner. That's not necessarily how it works. Um, there are many different examples. One of the recent examples might be, say, Fastly versus Cloudflare. Um, mm. That's been a tale of two, you know, companies. <laughs> so, um, so that's really interesting too. I, I, I I'm going to refer back to the original Gorilla Game investing book, which was um, investing in high technology, written in like the early or late 90s or something or early 2000s. And it's a great mm-hmm. book, and I'd encourage anyone to read it. We actually, I. I leveraged that book for a lot of our um, content that I put in our value investor course, which is the, our online investor training course. And um, basically, the way I think about it, and this, I'm going to, I'm going to try and just pull out one thing to add to yours rather than just reinvent it. But what I try and do, because we tend to invest in technology companies or companies that are, you know, they're predominantly B two C technology companies, but also B two B, is one of the things that I try and do is identify businesses where standards or infrastructure are being set. And so what, what I mean by that is oftentimes what happens in an industry when it's early is that everyone has great ideas about how it's going to be done. But there will typically be one company or two companies that set a certain standard for that industry. So Afterpay might be one for buy now, pay later. Um, it's set a standard of kind of what the minimum hurdle is and how you do credit checks without credit checks and all that sort of stuff. But a really interesting one in Australia might be Ordinate, AD8 is the ticket code. And this is the book that I instantly thought of when I thought of uh, when I was reading The Gorilla Game. And this basically is a an audio visual company that allows other device makers of like PA speakers in like buildings or shopping centers to basically turn an, um, a cable. So I'm just going to hold up my my Zoom recorder here, just like a standard XLR cable here into a smart cable and basically run it through Ethernet. So audiovisual through computer networks rather than through just analog cables. And so that basically turned it into smart products. And, and what um, device manufacturers would do is add the boards and add the software to the Dante software to their manufacturing process. So basically you would have a Dante-enabled device and then all of a sudden, you can plug and play onto any smart network. So a device that's typically dumb, in air quotes, now becomes smart thanks to Ordinate. And what we tend to find is, is most industries tend to emerge with a few winners, not necessarily one. There might be one outright winner, but then there might be second and third. You know, you get the podium finish like in the F1. Um, and basically, what I'm trying to do is figure out where are the people who know what they're doing, where are they moving towards who which of these in standard standards providers are they going towards and i think one of the easiest things investors can do particularly in technology is jump onto websites like stack overflow or github or any of these websites where developers loiter and ask questions the really good questions about technology it might sound really geeky but one of the things that i do is i kind of just check out those developer forums because if developers are building their solutions into whatever platform they're working on. So let's say it was a really good one here in Australia would be Zero, um, Zero the accounting software. So you didn't need to get super geeky in terms of the developer forums, but you could have, and you could have seen that the API documentation was brilliant. A lot of people are talking about it online. How can I have my HR software talk to Zero? Everyone's using Zero. How do I talk to Zero? I need to talk to Zero to get more customers. And then that's when you would have seen that not everyone was using Zero. They weren't using MYOB. Because that was the future. That was the backbone of accounting. And so that's an interesting way that you can try and 
put your finger on what people are working on. So you could do this with Cloudflare right now. You could jump on the Stack Overflow. You could jump onto wherever and see what are they talking about? Is that is that forum much more active than say the the Fastly one or some other random you know Joe Blogs CDN cyber business? And then you can look at things like um, Facebook communities or online communities where people who know what they're doing tend to be talking about these things. And that's so like, I'll give you one more final example just to hit this home. When I build websites or I build tools or whatever, when I'm doing my, I'll call it air quotes programming because I don't actually do a lot of the development myself. But when I do do it, the very first thing that I look for if I'm looking at using a third-party solution is go straight into their support and straight into their developer forums. Because if that community is alive and they're actively responding, it means there's kind of like enough support there to build on that platform or build on that ecosystem. And that means that I'm more likely to use it because I know that there's a community around it. And that is a powerful thing because then it feeds on itself. If you're looking for platforms, if you're looking for companies, like everyone has to integrate with zero at the end of the day. Now it's de facto. If you're a HR solution, you don't interact with zero. I tell you what, no one's going to use you. So, and that is how, I look at rapidly growing industries and how things coalesce around leaders. Look at that infrastructure, look at the standard, and there's a practical takeaway from this podcast of how you can do it. That's basically my golden tip on this. I don't know if that helps. I love it, actually. The the, the, the two things there, basically look at the infrastructure or the market evolving around a company. And number two is basically, the, number, number two is very software specific, right? Which is basically looking yeah. at companies that are loved by developers. That's actually a great sign. Companies loved by developers usually tend to be great companies. Yeah. And it's like if you look at, say, if you look at financial data companies, a lot of the a lot of developers prefer to use CapIQ over some of the other tools in the market, like Morningstar. And there are reasons for that. Either CapIQ from I don't use myself, but if you're building a technology app or website, most people integrate with CapIQ because it tends to be more friendly. And so it's going to be more supportive than the Morningstar API. So these are some examples of like, well, obviously, if people are using it, that's what you want to be. And I think, to be honest, I, I have this belief, and I, this is kind of shallow, just kind of throwaway lines, but I have this belief that kind of the next 10 or 15 years of technology investing is going to shift away from B to C and more B to B. If you understand the deeper compute and the deeper problems that need to be solved in our environment now, um, I think you're going to have a much better chance of finding great companies earlier. And so that's, again, a software specific, but um, I think if you have that skill and that ability to, to get a pulse check on the latest like, core infrastructure, you, you're going to have a, an advantage. So people like yourself, for example, that have a PhD in these things might actually uh, dominate going forward. So uh, good news for you, mate. But that's, that's the, um, that brings us to the end. Um, yeah, Julian says FinTwit can be a useful tool too. Uh, people like Muji at Hypergrowth. Yeah, Hypergrowth is awesome. If you if you have haven't checked out Hypergrowth, um, a great follows for Insight. Julian says who certain um, who you know has certain cool tech winners. I think there's another one called Full Stack. Um, Julian, you might know in the chat. Uh, full uh, Stack. Is it Full Stack or software software investing? I think software stack investing. I think SSI. Yeah, software that's, stack. That's investing, very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you know there are a few others you can you can read so if you Ben Evans has got great content mm, yeah um, 
And if you if you want to read about Apple and adjacent things, then Neil Seibert has excellent coverage. Probably one of the best Apple analysts out there is, is Neil Seibert. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of very interesting content out there that one yep. can find. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as always, one of the great places that you can go to is seveninvesting.com. There's going to be a stock recommendation out in the next 24 hours from Dr. Anir Mahanti, if I'm not mistaken. Well, the two best places to go to would be what, sevenvesting.com and norask.com.au. Yeah, yeah. let's let's call it as we see it. So, yeah, um, that's what we think it is, right? (laughs) That's it. Why go anywhere else? That's it. Yeah, come on. Come on, guys. Um, (laughs) No, we're all about sharing the love here. And um, Seven Investing, you can head to. seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe i believe it is and you can use the rask that's r-a-s-k coupon code to get 10 bucks off it's already super super cheap for the value that's created by the seven investing team for investors um so go right ahead join let us know what you think um and likewise you can head to rask.com.au and you can find out more about us um i might just give a shout out to the value investor program that i've created um it's a good one it's pretty easy to get through uh, it's a fully online program for people that want to learn how to research companies. Cool, mate. Well, um, next week um, we'll be back again, I guess, and people can can find you on Twitter. Is that is that all right? Yeah, well, that's that's the only place really online social network that I'm on. Mm-hmm. I haven't learned my TikTok dances yet, so. <laughs> in time, in time, the uh, seven investing marketing team will be like, listen, you're the best dancer in the team. We've got to get you out there. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, find us on Twitter, um, you know, um, at Owen Rask uh, mm-hmm. for Owen, um, at seven A Mahanti for myself. But again, just interact with us, you know, uh, even if mm. you don't subscribe to our stuff, that's okay. We'd love answering questions, love having a chat on. Mm. Um, on Twitter, exchanging ideas, and you know, maybe you can pitch us your best talk ideas, and we can. Yeah, that'd them. be good. Yeah, that's, that'd be great. <laughs> if you want to share your research with us, by all means, please go right ahead, and we can talk about it even next week. So, wonderful, mate. As always, thanks for uh, thanks for taking some time to join me. Yeah, thank you very much. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.